listening to a podcast from The National. You're listening to The National's Business Extra podcast. My name's Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor, and today I'm joined once more by Andy Scott, a former business reporter for The National, and now a highly prized member of our multimedia team, it says here. First up, we'll take a look at a couple of the big business stories that have caught our attention over the past few days, namely the Greek exit from a bruising eight-year bailout programme, and also the move by Venezuela to devalue its currency, the Bolivar, and launch a new one. And of course, we can't let the latest developments of the saga involving Tesla and its CEO Elon Musk go without a mention, a story that's proving to have more legs than a centipede. Finally, I talk with Mariam Amari, who for the past 18 years has been showing everyone from business leaders to royalty the fine art of effective public communication. But first, Greece is the word. Tell me more, tell me more. (laughs) Greece finally left its eight-year bailout program on Monday after over an eight-year period borrowing from the EU, the European Central Bank and the IMF 289 billion euros in three sets of loans. Um, That's a lot of money. It is. Did you know that it's not until 2060 when the last repayment loan is due? Well, you and I won't be around to see that. That's how much it is. It's a huge number indeed. Um, Although, did you know that Italy has a greater debt pile? Doesn't surprise me. Yes, but that's the point. And I think this is the whole point about the Greece problem. Mm. It's Europe's problem and the Euro's problem, which was all part of why Greece found itself in this predicament. Absolutely. And it's an argument that has been made particularly from Brexiteers, in fact, that when the EU took on countries such as Greece and uh, not Italy to the same extent, but other smaller countries, particularly southern European countries. Pigs, I think they were called. Something like that, yeah. yeah Portugal, um, Italy. Yeah, they were not uh, economically Greece, as powerful Spain. as as the the main players, and that led to huge huge uh, problems both for the newcomers and and for the EU itself. Um, the reasons really why they needed Greece particularly needed the loans was financial mismanagement, ineptitude, ineptitude, yeah, and tax evasion. Up to well, it just uh, wasn't stamping down on tax evasion. That was the one they ignored yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They kept Pull on paying it. pensions for three decades. Yeah, they ignored the corruption of the tax. Yeah, they didn't get to handle with the debt pile. They they even lied about it to the well, EU. So, yeah, statistical data was just was just made up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, my heart goes out to them. Yeah, <laughs> I do, them. and Greece is a great place. Yeah, it is. However, yeah. it's the people and it's the poor who've paid Absolutely. most highly for this. The poor, the and pensioners, will be, and the yeah, lower paid, and will yeah. still be. Absolutely. While they've come out of uh, the IMF debt repayment program, not debt repayment program, sorry, the bailout um, program. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is um, this is a skeleton rising from the grave rather mm-hmm. than a body mm-hmm. moving around, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Just on the scale of tax evasion, in 2010, the government tax was evaded to the tune of 20 billion euros. At 2012, it was estimated it only actually re- received half of what it should have done. Ouch. So, you know, that and, as you say, you know, the the, the government's inability to monitor actually what it was, ex- what it was spending as regards what it was uh, bringing in Generally, it was spending twice as much as what it was getting, and tax receipts were nowhere near uh, covering any anywhere near half those costs. So it got and, into serious trouble yeah, very quickly. And the really. problem going forward is that unemployment is still around 20, 20 odd percent, yeah. and I think under 25s, it's almost double that. Yeah. There is the, the, the banks still don't have the security in their economy because it's a dead man walking. Yeah. 
So therefore, that debt pile might start to grow rather than get better. Exactly. And at the moment, legacy debt and new debt is estimated at over $100 billion. 100 billion euros, which, I mean, you know, it's going to take God knows how many years to to bring down, to repay the, the uh, bailout program. How are they going to start tackling a debt which already now is at 100 billion euros? Well, that's the point, isn't it? The EU, who lent them the 289 billion euros, are probably going to have to take a haircut. And the problem is, is that the people of Germany, who the banks, sorry, in mm. Germany, but a lot of the taxpayers Mm-mm-mm. chip into that, Mm-mm. they... Uh, they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to bail Greece out. They have done it, and they're probably not going to see the return of their cash. Mm. However, for the solidity of the European project, it's possibly worthwhile. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows which way that's going? It's happen. it's interesting balance, isn't it? The initial response to to uh, the exit on Monday was was mixed at best. Um, it was perhaps the the negative side of it was perhaps best summed up by um, Yanis Mouzakis, who is um, a a Greek analyst, and talking about the future, he said, in the longer term, Greece is facing serious demographic and productivity challenges which require significant reforms, long-term strategy and political consensus, which I currently don't see in the Greek political system. I think we'll be waiting a long time for Greece's summer night. Ah, very good. And, of course, on Monday also, uh, Venezuela went a bit um, a bit Maduro, you could say. Oh. Um, it issued new Bolivar banknotes, which were stripped of five zeros, which was effectively a 95% devaluation. It was called the Sovereign Bolivar, and it replaced the previously named Strong Bolivar. Uh, and these are part of um, President Nicolas Maduro's plan to curb hyperinflation. Um, this is Venezuela, the country with the largest proven oil inventories reserves, yeah. in reserves yeah. in the in the world on yeah. the planet. Yeah, what was a major major player, and is of course an OPEC member, um, and is now. You were talking about Greece being a skeleton. This is dust almost. I mean, it's 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 very it, it, much. It, I've got to say, I can't even raise a smile at this. The amount mm. of people leaving the country yeah. now, they're putting yeah. out their problems across the region. South America is buckling under the fact that the refugees from Venezuela, it doesn't make sense to have refugees from such an energy-rich country. it's crazy, isn't it? And and it's it's an absolute signal of how, well, I mean, you you know, it might sound a bit strong, but how lunatic the the government's strategy, in particular Mr. Maduro's strategy, is at the moment. I I think it was Hugo Chavez who actually caused most of the He may have caused it, yeah, but what Maduro's doing now is is exacerbating it. Mm it's you know devaluing your currency from what was effectively worthless had become effectively worthless by 95% to try and uh try and um, reverse economic and and well total decline uh is is just i mean it's just uh, baffling really he also announced on monday a 3400% hike in the minimum wage yes and taxes on businesses yeah Taxes on businesses, not well received. Henkel Garcia, director of consultancy group Econometrica, um, described it as a crazy measure. Um, and I think that was pretty much reflected everywhere. However, when you're looking at hyperinflation that Venezuela is going through, this is when prices change daily, Mm-mm. You know, possibly doubling daily. You know, the, um, it's similar to when the Weimar Republic, 1923, yeah. everyone knew that between the, the wars... Uh, when people would have to take a wheelbarrow of cash to buy a loaf of bread. 
and people would empty the cash out and steal the wheelbarrow. Yeah. That is now the, the, the levels of, of, of ridiculousness yeah. in Venezuela. Yeah. But I asked you this earlier. You didn't answer me, and I've, I've hidden it in my back pocket. Which country has ever seen the highest rate of hyperinflation? I don't know, Andy, which but country. I knew you didn't know. <laughs> and it's Hungary after ah. the Second World War. Uh-huh. Get this. They saw 41 quadrillion percent inflation. I can't even imagine that number. Well, do you know what a quadrillion is? Uh, it's something bigger than um, a thread middle. No, I don't. <laughs> it's a number after the thousands yeah. with 14 noughts after it. It's a significant, and it was 41.9 yeah. quadrillion percent. Wow. Yeah. Yes, their economy fell apart. Yeah. Yeah. But what this tells you is there is hope. While, of course... It's always the poorest and the, and the and the oldest who bear the brunt of these uh, inflationary measures. There is a way out, and Venezuela just needs to possibly forget the Bolivar, go back to the dollar. And I know mm. the the uh, intransigence between President Trump, who's put uh, tariffs on mm. um, and economic sanctions on Venezuela. That is possibly not a strong way to move. However, they need to buckle down and find a way. Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, the IMF is predicting that, uh, okay, it's not quite quadrillions, but predicting that inflation is going to hit a million percent this year. Um, You were talking of uh, the hyperinflation in Germany in the 20s when the mark, the then mark, went from 4.2 to the dollar to 7,400 marks to the dollar. And we we carried a gallery uh, in the national this week of um, the Bolivar and what you could, how much something like a packet of kids' nappies would cost, and it's the same thing. It is stack upon stack upon stack of Bolivars. Um, it, you know, it, it it is frightening how close uh, the similarity is. The other thing that really baffled watchers was was Maduro has anchored his new currency to his own a cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency yes. the Petro, yes. yeah, which is something he just made up, really. It has no intrinsic value whatsoever. So he, he says each Petro will be worth $60, um, and he's basing that on the price of a barrel of oil, Venezuelan oil. So the new currency, that'll be 3,600 bolivars, and the minimum wage will be fixed at 1,800 bolivars, which will be about 28%, uh, $28, sorry. And how are they going to fund this, do you think? I don't know exactly how they're going to... Oh, I, well, I, they're going to because they raise taxes on businesses, yeah. they uh, and they are going to pay the. I think the f- the state is going to pay the minimum wage for the first three months. Mm-hmm. But that, no, I don't know where they're going to yeah. generate cash. Well, uh, according to Information Minister Jorge Rodriguez, uh, it will be funded with oil income taxes and income from petrol price hikes. Um, now, bearing in mind, without subsidies, very, very few Venezuelans could actually buy petrol. Well, I'm not sure about that, actually, because, the, the, I, I, and again, I was only looking at news footage, but the, the, there are still a lot of um, cars on the road because they have the cheapest petrol on the planet. But he, he is, but that's because it's subsidised, and he's going to take the subsidies off. Right. Which okay. means, um, according, to most, yeah, according to most observers, most people will not be able to buy fuel. Um so where's that going to go? Anyway, enough but of But by Venezuela. the way, um, yeah. uh, Madovar did say he would make everyone millionaires, and he has. <laughs> yes, he has. Yes, he has. They just don't have space to... to well, uh, yeah, it, it, it's six million Bolivar to one dollar, yeah. so... Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, that's enough Venezuela. Um, of course, we've got to have a quick look at uh, Mr. Musk, haven't we? He hit headlines this week um, because there's been a lot of uh, worry from the board and from shareholders about, effectively, about his state of mind. 
um, caused by his workload. Uh, Ariana Huffington, um, an Uber board member, was scathing uh, in an open letter she wrote about him, saying, uh, accusing him of demonstrating a wildly outdated, anti-scientific and horribly inefficient way of using human energy, adding that he should find a new way that he works to work. <laughs> That's because he's, he's been you know, sort of tweeting at half past two in the morning, isn't it? Exactly, and it came uh, uh, it came after he'd uh, done an interview where he he said he'd sacrificed family milestones, and he'd also talked about his uh, use of a sedative Ambien. Um, but the Tesla CEO is nothing if not his own man, and he hit back at two thirty two a.m. Pacific time on Sunday. He tweeted, "I just got home from the factory. You think this, i.e., changing his work pattern, is an option?" It is not. Well, that's that's as, that's as maybe. But I think the point is, is is he going to take it private or not? This seventy-two billion dollar country it would be the biggest ever uh, institution becoming uh, going private. He's not backed up his original tweet, which was last week. He's fallen into disrepute again, uh, slagging people off and having yeah. uh, scuffles around the side. He's talking, I mean, I know um, the Goldman Sachs and Goldman are advising. They say, yeah. Yeah, there are some serious financial players willing to get involved with him, which... Well, there are also some very serious financial players who are very unusual for uh, for greedy investment bankers who are going, hmm, I don't know what we're going to do about this because if we get involved, if we pitch for business, we get involved and our name is attached to it, and in fact it does all implode, uh, the reputational damage will be significant. Well, it's but like if dealing they don't, with, it's like dealing with Willy Wonka. Yeah, well, yeah. If they don't, of course, whoever does get involved and they, he is successful, it's mega payday. Someone gets a golden ticket. Absolutely, it's mega payday. Adding to to uh, Musk's pressure, I guess, uh, was also the news this week that the Saudi PIF Sovereign Wealth Fund, which has already built five five uh, percent stake in Tesla, is apparently hedging its bets because it is reportedly looking at putting a billion dollars into another U.S. electric car company called Lucid Motors, which would give it a majority ownership. So it would basically own it. It could be seen that the PIF, who are the- Lucid Motors. Well, exactly. What they are is a very, very well-regarded electric car maker in the States, startup that has been Tesla trying. were very well-regarded. Well, they've been trying to, to gain significant investment and have been unable to do so because Tesla is the big fish and nobody else has been looking at anyone else. Now, if the PIF does that, it puts itself in a great position. If, if Tesla goes bang, it has something immediately ready to take take uh, take over the road. But anyway, it's his communication problems that have got him into a spot of bother. And in light of that, uh, recently I was joined in the studio uh, by the renowned Emirati communications expert, public speaker and MC, Marianne Amiri, who gave us an insight into what really good message making is all about. And perhaps Mr. Musk should have a listen. You've been involved uh, in the sphere of public speaking and and the communications industry for around 18 years, for more than 18 years, and you've shared a lot of stages with some some big names, and you've done a lot of work with organisations and companies, particularly you're involved in the launch of 2454. Can you give us a background of roughly kind of what it is that, that you bring to those kind of events? The role that I play when it comes to large-scale events is the role of a master of ceremony. Mm -hmm. A master of ceremony is someone who has the responsibility of orchestrating the event from stage, making sure that the audience is engaged, um, that the event is ticking along smoothly, and of course, setting the right tone for Mm -hmm. the event. Mm -hmm. Now, we still live at a time where the UAE 
is continuing to establish itself as a destination, whether it be it tourism or business. And of course, we have large scale events that want to attract a lot of media attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So having the right speakers, having the right participants at those events that help put certain initiatives and companies on the map mm -hmm. is really important and making sure that the tone of those speakers align with the tone and the brand and the messaging of the event. Mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to those large-scale events, every attendee, every participant there ultimately becomes your ambassador after the event. So mm -hmm. the experience that they have, the look and feel of the event that they experience during the time is really important. So when you're a speaker during these events, you obviously want to not only have the right messages and the right tone, but you also want to engage your audience so that they can go on and become uh, communication ambassadors for mm -hmm. you ultimately after the event has mm -hmm. been has completed. Um, you were also involved in the global launch of the brand of Abu Dhabi. Um, can you tell us what, what that was intending to do and, and roughly when it was? So as you know, the Emirate of Abu Dhabi is, has very ambitious plans to mark itself on the international map. And 10 years ago, we realized that we needed a brand to help mark Abu Dhabi as the future destination for a lot of the big and upcoming events, such mm -hmm. as the Formula One, the FIFA mm -hmm. Club World Cup. Mm -hmm. You know, we were turning into a an entertainment destination, mm -hmm. for example, for all the concerts and the performances that were happening mm -hmm. here, in addition to all the sporting events. Yeah. So being part of that branding process and being part of the team that was able to, to launch the brand of Abu Dhabi was fascinating because it takes you through a journey of self-discovery, essentially. Mm -hmm. You want to understand what it is that this emirate stands on. And the essence of the brand of Abu Dhabi at the time is was respect. Respect in the way we do things, respect in the way we interact with each other. The ultimate objective was for any tourist or any traveler, because travelers are welcome, mm -hmm. who were traveling into Abu Dhabi was to have a journey of respect from the moment they boarded an Etihad Airways flight, mm -hmm. you know, made it through the airport immigration, hailed a cab at Abu Dhabi airport and checked mm -hmm. in at their hotel. Mm -hmm. So being part of that team gave you a new perspective and helped you filter things through the lens of, of respect. Mm -hmm. And it gave a new, um, it just gave a new idea to, to branding. It was no longer just a nice pretty logo slapped on yeah. the side of a taxi. Yeah. It yeah. represented a it, it represented values, yeah. it represented a look and feel, mm -hmm. uh, it represented people, and it definitely represented a place. We had a report recently that uh, in this country, um, about three quarters of, of new graduates, who of course are not old hands at, at communicating, um, cited the challenge of finding that first job that or the job that you know that they wanted as by far the biggest challenge what, what advice would you give a, a new graduate coming into the workplace to begin with about how they should communicate their um, themselves and their, their uh, desires and ambitions and skills I think there's a lot of talk about how to prepare yourself for an interview but something that we miss out on completely is your writing skills and the ability to write a stellar CV, because it's that CV that gets your foot in the door. Um, if you don't have a good CV that would attract the attention of your potential employer, that positions you as a candidate who has come to save the day, then 
you won't even be called in for for an interview. So it really is a two-step process. Uh, what I would advise graduates is, number one, to really up their writing skills, yeah. um, albeit in Arabic or English or any language it is that they're communicating, because yeah. um, that is what's going to help them get in the door and get them that interview. What do you think, uh, do, you, do you think there's a fine line between, you know, overplaying your your skills. I mean, if you go in all, you know, as you say, all guns blazing, I'm here to save the day and you give X, Y, Z uh, reasons as to why. Um, is, is there, can you overplay that? And there could be a situation where, you know, the potential HR recruitment department is thinking this person is far, far too full of themselves. Um, where, do you, where do you find that line? I think what's important is because we know that time is lacking, People complain about it day in and day out. We just don't have time for anything. So you really only have one quick shot to grab the attention of the HR manager or the recruitment officer that's looking at your CV. And rather than talking about what it is that you're good at, maybe focus on what it is that you can do to help them. So that goes back to the whole knowing knowing your audience. So doing your due diligence and doing your research on the company and any changes that they're going through. Um, you know, what kind of markets are they participating in so that you know what are the latest trends? Mm-hmm. Because you definitely want to come in as, guys, I know where your pain areas are and this is where I can come and help yeah. you. As opposed to, this is what I'm really good at. This is why you should hire me. Do you think... I mean, obviously, what you do is provide um, entrepreneurs and, and business people um, with uh, your insight into the best forms of, of communications, the best way to present um, the information that they want to present. Do you think there's there's potential then for perhaps that uh, that idea and those ideas and practices that you that you um, undertake to be involved in in the in the educational aspect of of um, higher education do you think it, it could play a useful role I think maybe it can take a, a different angle there's a lot of focus on how you are emitting information or communicating information but not enough to know how others process that information and again that goes back to the whole idea of really knowing your audience mm-hmm. um, you can be super charismatic you can put on an amazing performance. Um, get people super motivated when you talk. But if they don't understand the messages that you're communicating, if they don't have um, takeaways from your from your talk or your communication to them, then you haven't really gotten your point across. Mm-hmm. You haven't engaged them into, to an extent, yeah. Um, going back through your career, I mean, is, you know, you've, you've been involved in, in public speaking and emceeing, for, for, as we said, for more than 18 years. How, how did you get into that? What, what were you doing before and how did you become a professional speaker? Well, it started when I was in school. Mm. Um, I took part in a summer program that was overseen by one of the oil companies here. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that program, we were expected to deliver a presentation. And everybody was sitting around and just like playing with PowerPoint and fonts and animations. Mm-hmm. Um, and... For me, that was my first encounter with stage fright and fear because not only was I presenting my learnings to my father who happened to be in the audience, but I was also being presented to the heads of the various training departments in that company. Mm -hmm. I don't envy anyone in that position, especially not a (laughs) 15-year-old. But it really helped me look at public speaking from a different angle because the rush that you get afterwards... Mm. When you know that you've gotten your point across, you know that it has provided future opportunities for you because people 
look at you as someone with a very rare competency, you know, being able to address groups of people with confidence. And coherently, of course. And coherently. You, it suddenly opens up a lot of doors. Um, and it's definitely something that I advise people to, as a skill to, to definitely improve mm. on. Um, you know, sometimes people even seem more intelligent than they really are because they're great <laughs> public speakers. So take advantage of that, leverage yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think uh, this country in particular is, is becoming better at uh, its, well, and, and the, the companies within it, at that coherent communication of, of both of brand Abu Dhabi and, and of the companies, individual local companies, and how they get their message out? Do you think um, that there is more that they could be doing, or do you think it's, uh, do you think it's going in the right direction? I've seen a big change over how communications is seen as a function over the last decade. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, a typical corporate communications function in an organization here would probably only be a, a press office that's reactive at best, mm-hmm. um, issuing press releases. But over the last 10 years, given the international exposure, given the international events and conferences that we've hosted here in Abu Dhabi, corporate communications has definitely taken a, a different step. Uh, it's no longer limited to media relations only. Uh, we're, here, we're here to talk about how can we proliferate the, the message and the branding of Abu Dhabi across all of our communication channels. Mm-hmm. Across all platforms, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, finally, Mariam, I know you've, you've done a fair bit of writing yourself, but um, uh, recently you wrote uh, a piece entitled The Mistake of Eliminating Your Fear of Public Speaking. Now, when I read that title, I thought, that sounds counterintuitive. Surely you want to eliminate your fear of public speaking. So what was it you were, you were uh, getting at there? Um, fear is a funny subject because a lot of people think that it's bad for them. Uh, fear is kryptonite. That's the way I look at fear. It absolutely paralyzes you, right? It starts with your brain, it goes down to your voice, and it just branches out to all of your limbs. And we've seen people on stage who are completely taken aback by the sea of eyeballs in front of them, cold sweat, wobbly knees, you know, it's not a position that you want to see yourself in. So, so yes, a lot of people do want to get rid of that fear. But the way I look at fear is that fear teaches you how to protect yourself from risky situations. So it keeps you alive. If, as opposed to eliminating your fear, what you need to be focusing on is managing your fear. And you manage your fear by allowing it to creep into your system in very controlled and small doses. Because it's that fear that leads you to prepare, prepare, and prepare some more. And that's what you really need to be doing when it comes to public speaking. Um, fear is stemmed in biology, it's stemmed in psychology, but a lot of it comes from the the fact that you're about to deal with a lot of unknowns, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. The moment you get a request from your manager saying, hey, I need you to present this next week, you panic because yeah. you don't know what you're presenting at that moment. Yeah. You don't know who you're presenting it to. You don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. And you certainly don't know how people are going to judge you. Yeah. And that's the biggest element or the biggest dimension of fear that people really worry about. Mm-hmm. It's it's judgment mm-hmm. um, because nobody wants to look like a fool as mm-hmm. they're as they're presenting. So having the ability to manage your fear as opposed to eliminating it entirely is something that is healthy. Many thanks to Miss Amiri for that and also to Andy Scott. 
That was the National Business Extra podcast. My name's Chris Nelson, and today's episode was produced by Kevin Jeffers. You can find us at your usual app providers and at thenational.ae.